From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. And welcome back to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. And I think it's fair to say that the appropriations meltdown of 2023 has hit full force and effect this week. We really saw chaos. The dysfunction in the House was quite evident this week as the House tried again to bring up its defense spending bill. They couldn't. They tried a plan to get a stopgap funding measure in place to head off this this government shutdown that appears closer and closer to reality. And then that collapsed. They couldn't get enough support to even try to bring that up on the House floor. In the Senate, which has been praised for all its bipartisanship, their effort to bring up their first three spending bills for the coming year also was derailed. They could not get agreement on amendments to be able to bring that measure up. It really stalled. And now they're pivoting to their own version of a stopgap measure that we're going to see on the Senate floor, we think, next week, which is going to set up a big fight with the House over what kind of short-term funding extension they can support, and a big fight between the chambers over whether that measure should include more aid for Ukraine. That is going to be a nasty fight that could derail the funding extension and could lead to the shutdown. So there's a lot to talk about this week. And joining me for that conversation, I have Aiden Quigley, the appropriations reporter at CQ Roll Call. Thanks again for being here, Aiden. Thanks for having me. And John Donnelly, a senior defense budget writer at CQ Roll Call. Thanks for being here, John. Good morning. So here we are, really just a week to go before the government has to shut down, which is looking more and more likely. And it's fair to say Congress just can't get its act together. We did see, Aiden, a a really embarrassing breakdown on the House floor this week. Uh, where House Republicans who have the majority were just struggling to do anything, seemingly floundering from one plan to the next. With every passing hour, the story was changing as to what they were prepared to support, what they were prepared to take to the floor. Nothing worked for them. Yeah, it was definitely a chaotic week up on the Hill, uh, especially on the House side where we had two rule votes go down for the defense spending bill, uh, including one yesterday that was widely expected to pass after they they got two of the no votes from the first vote uh, into the yes category. So that was really a a surprise. As of Wednesday night, it looked like there had been at least some sort of movement forward, uh, at least on the defense measure, the rule vote for that. But but as we're sitting here today on Friday, we're kind of back to the drawing board. You know, House appropriators are working on new plans to try to get things back on track next week. But those plans are relating to the full year spending and not the you know stopgap CR that we need by the end of uh, next week to keep the government open. So we're really kind of in a in a difficult situation when it comes to government funding, which is why you're going to be hearing a lot of shutdown noise. You're already hearing it, and it's just going to get louder and louder as we move into. Uh, closer to the deadline. Yeah. And the other thing the House was doing this week was they thought they had saved their their funding extension plan. They thought they had rounded up, you know, or were hopeful they were rounding up enough votes 
to take that up. It had already, this was a, a plan brokered with members of the Hard Right Freedom Caucus. It had already tried to pare back spending the way they wanted, the conservatives wanted, to a lower level than what was agreed two months ago. It included these tough border security measures that the hard right really wants, and yet they still they still couldn't couldn't get the votes for that. Had to have been a stinging embarrassment for Speaker Kevin McCarthy because it, I think, by on Wednesday he had really seemed hopeful that this was starting to come together. They were talking of keeping the House in session Friday and into the weekend to get the stopgap measure passed, and that all seems to have gone by the wayside now. It, yeah, it does. Obviously, where it's Friday and uh, the Rules Committee is going to be meeting today and, and potentially tomorrow as well. But the full House, it's, a, it's in recess subject to the chair, but but uh, members are, most members left town last night and were kind of in a uh, stalemate position when it comes to the continuing resolution. But just as many expected all along, the Senate is going to be moving uh, a stopgap spending measure next week, it appears. So that could be a way out of government shutdown, but it's really just going to kick the ball back into McCarthy's court. And he has to decide whether he's going to, you know, go along with the Senate plan or fight and potentially shut down the government. Yeah, I have to say, I would not want to be Kevin McCarthy right now. He is really in a hot seat. He just, I mean, he just got a black eye from his own conference who couldn't back this stopgap plan. And now he's probably going to be facing a Senate-passed stopgap measure that his own conference is not going to like. And he's got to decide whether he wants to work in a bipartisan way to pass, to you know, to prevent a government shutdown. And you have to have bipartisan support to do that. Or, you know, and, and if he does that, then he risks being ousted from his own conference who are going to be angry that he's working with Democrats. So, I mean, he's really in a bind. And the biggest the biggest factor there, I think, um, on, on a stopgap measure seems to be Ukraine aid. We had uh, the U- Ukraine's president visit Capitol Hill on Thursday, pleading for more aid. The Senate is certainly on board with that. They will certainly put much of the Biden administration's Ukraine request in this package. Members of both parties have expressed support for that, but not so House Republicans, John. Um, this is shaping up to be a real, a real fight, I think. Absolutely. I mean, you have you have those who uh, support President what President Biden has done so far. You have those uh, uh, mainly in the House Freedom Caucus that oppose uh, any additional aid. Uh, I saw Senator Tuberville actually came out with something in the last 24 hours saying not one more dime for, for Ukraine. Um, but so you have that, that group. <clears throat> then you have a group that I would say is uh, led by Senator McConnell. And it's a bipartisan group um, of, I guess, shorthand way of describing it would be hawks. Uh, but these are people who want to do not only what President Biden is doing, but to do more and to do it faster uh, to help Ukraine. Uh, but the bottom line is that, yeah, this is shaping up to be almost an epic uh, uh, collision coming up next week, not just because of Ukraine, but because of everything else that you just went through. And 
of course, there's only a few legislative days uh, to get it done. Um, so it's 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 really going to be one, I think shaping up to be one of the more dramatic weeks that I can remember um, in covering uh, appropriations. And here's the other problem: you know, there's only a week left before the shutdown. The Senate does not move quickly, <laughs> even though they maybe have bipartisan support for a stopgap measure. They cannot move quickly. They need unanimous consent to speed everything up. And they won't have unanimous consent because you do have some right-wing Republicans in the Senate who don't want the Ukraine aid, as you said. Hard to see them giving unanimous consent for this package. You've got Rand Paul, the firebrand from Kentucky, uh, also warning that he won't support a package with with Ukraine aid, which likely means he's prepared to block it so that they have to move very slowly. So it would probably take till the end of next week just for the Senate to produce a bill and get it over to the House. And then they're out of time in the shutdown. We're at least looking at, I think, a short term, you know, a, a, a brief shutdown at a minimum, because I don't think the House will have time to deal with whatever the Senate sends them, Aiden. Is it fair to say that? Totally fair to say. Obviously, we're in a real timing crunch at this point. And as you point out, you know, Senator Rand Paul is already saying he will object to any unanimous consent for any package that includes Ukraine money. So we're really kind of treading in the direction of a shutdown is all but guaranteed at this point, I would say, just by looking at time and math. And there's no clear way out at this moment. I guess a clear way out would be the Senate go through its process you know, overcomes the objections just by, you know, timing, waiting it out, um, pushing forward. And then McCarthy will have to work with Democrats, but that would kind of, you know, throw his speakership into the balance, which he really does not want to do. Um, so kind of an unclear path forward at this point, I would say, uh, it's going to be interesting to cover and, uh, tumultuous, uh, I would, I would guess. Yeah, and we now have the, almost the absurd situation of the House now scrambling to plow ahead with its full-year spending bills simply because there aren't the votes to pass this this stopgap measure that they need to prevent a shutdown. So they're spending some of their weekend, at least some of them, working on moving these full-year bills that aren't going to do much good, that everyone knows are never going to become law because the, the Senate would never accept them. And it would take time. It's going to take weeks and weeks anyway to to coalesce around a compromise, compromise appropriations for the year. But they're going to they're going to be devoting their time to that right on the heels of a shutdown instead of actually working to prevent the shutdown, which really says something, I think, about the state of where the House Republicans are here that they just can't agree to anything. Yeah, and on the full-year spending bills, I mean, the House Republicans have been working on these for months and months and months and pushing forward, but have run into opposition from members of the House Freedom Caucus who want deeper cuts. And I don't know if that's something that can be solved in a weekend. You know, they've been negotiating and trying to work through this for, for you know, at least since the end of July when it became clear that there was some conservative opposition to the way that the bills were written. Uh, even though, you know, the 10 bills that got through committee all passed with unanimous Republican support. Uh, you know, since July, it's been clear that 
that House Freedom Caucus has wanted deeper cuts and they haven't been able to work out a deal. And, you know, maybe there's something coming together this weekend and, and maybe the, the deadline pressure of October 1 will lessen some of the objections. It does seem like there's something of a compromise number of the 1.5 uh, trillion number that has been floating, floated. Uh, but still, you know, House of Profaders are in a really tough spot as they tried to rewrite their bills over the course of a weekend with deeper cuts, bills that have already passed through committee. And some of them aren't happy about it. Hey, uh, David, you know, it, it strikes me that at least look, just looking at the defense uh, appropriations bill for fiscal 2024, that the Republicans have put themselves in this box in the sense that um, the, the, the reason that McCarthy needs every single member of his caucus of his conference, and therefore the reason that the that the handful of holdouts have such power, is because the they're all virtually to a person, Democrats oppose the defense spending bill, and why is that? Because the defense spending bill more than is is probably the most partisan. Um, defense spending bill I have seen in my many years of covering this. It contains a whole bunch of what, what are being described as culture war provisions, right? Um, and, you know, the big one being uh, preventing any uh, Defense Department covering of expenses related to people getting abortions. Um, and there are others, too, about diversity and about L LGBTQ uh, personnel. So that's why there isn't a single Democrat who will support that defense bill. And hence, they need every single one of the Republicans. But if they had just, if they had not done that, if they had fashioned a more bipartisan defense bill, then they could have gotten at least some of those Democrats. And that would have completely taken the power away from this half dozen ultra conservative group. Yeah, that's, that is a really good point and really important to know when you are talking about the defense bill and some of the other bills where they did something, they did basically, they put similar cultural provisions into uh, nearly all of the bills. But if they hadn't done that, the bills wouldn't have gotten through the Appropriations Committee, where you have members of the House Freedom Caucus who are really pushing to get those provisions into the bills. So I think, you know, it's been, it's really been a game where, Leadership has been trying to appease the Freedom Caucus, and you know they 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 kind of took they made the bills as conservative as possible to get them through committee, and now they're on the floor, and you know they're just running into even more issues with the Freedom Caucus, where it's hard to hard to solve. But the House typically does draft partisan appropriations bills. I mean. They need bipartisan bills in the Senate to move through, but the House typically is a partisan, much more partisan institution where they can ram things through on party line votes just to send them to the Senate and make themselves feel good. And that's how they like to do it. And they have the right to do it that way instead of working in a bipartisan fashion. The problem this year, of course, is that the margin McCarthy has to work with is so razor thin that only a couple of defections from his conference is enough to sink the bill. So even though the vast majority of the 220-odd uh, Republican members are with McCarthy, we're only talking somewhere between five and 10 members, I think, that are the rebels here, the detractors, but that's plenty 
to sink everything because these are these are being passed on party line votes where Democrats are united in their opposition, as John said. So that's the conundrum. But they're not, they're not willing to work in a bipartisan fashion. They're just not. And McCarthy has this added pressure where any one member of, of his conference could move at any time to try to oust him on the House floor. Hey, I, I agree with you that the, that the House is generally more partisan than the Senate. And Aiden makes a good point about how they had to uh, get uh, Freedom Caucus votes in the committee as well to get the bills through. But I have a feeling that they could have made it a bit less partisan in the defense bill anyway. And because, you know, I know the the author the Armed Services Committee is not the same as the Appropriations Committee, but if you look at the NDAA, the Defense Authorization Bill that came out of the House Armed Services Committee, it was a bi- it was a fairly bipartisan measure. Um, it was only on the floor that amendments were added, that the culture war amendments were added to that bill. But it came out of committee without that stuff in it. And so I, I think I think it would have been easier to do a bipartisan bill from the appropriations, the defense appropriations uh, subcommittee than it would be to deal with it on the floor. So that's that's just that's my point on that, because that has what has given a half dozen Freedom Caucus members the power that they have. Well, meanwhile, the more urgent matter here, as the House tries to plow ahead on some full year spending bills, is the fate of this stopgap measure which is the only thing that can prevent the shutdown, we are going to see the Senate, Aiden, they did announce plans now to to pivot. Their, their own spending bills were going nowhere on the floor last week because of some myriad objections on, uh, you know, from Republican senators, you're trying to use leverage just to push unrelated amendments to it. So they've given up on that and they watched the House stopgap plan go down the tubes so Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, announced that he is going to take up a bill that can be used as a vehicle to to offer their own stopgap measure. I think it's a safe bet. We know what that is. It's it's going to just extend current funding, probably into December. If I had to guess, would be their preference. Uh, not this one month long thing that McCarthy was was trying to do. It's going to just continue current funding levels, which. House Republicans don't want, and they don't want it into December. It's going to attach Ukraine aid. It's going to attach disaster relief aid that that FEMA desperately needs for all these wildfires and flooding issues that have been pretty much across the country these days. It's going to have all that stuff in it, maybe some border measures. And big question here, it, it may take all week to pass. And then what does McCarthy do? Yeah, that that is a question. You know, we're going to see the Senate move next week uh, onto onto the CR. Uh, but again, it'll take some time to pass. We don't know exactly what it'll look like. We have a general idea, but obviously, there's negotiations going on right now between Republicans and Democrats to draft something that can get to sixty votes in the Senate, which should be pretty straightforward. I mean, the Senate there does seem to be some bipartisanship and, and similar ideas on what they want. And for example, Ukraine aid does have wide bipartisan Senate support at this point. But uh, obviously the big question will get one timing in the Senate and two, when we get back to the house, how does McCarthy react to that? And, you know, I, I do think we are trending right now though, to Ukraine aid being the reason the government shuts down, at least in the public eye. 
because uh, uh, there's always something that, that is, you know, the policy issue over the government shutdown. And I think I think it might be Ukraine aid because partially because there's no other major policy disputes going on at the moment. It's just spending levels. But uh, with the Republicans in the Senate objecting to timing over Ukraine aid, I think that we'll see that kind of a marge as the central focus here of, of the government shutdowns. That does seem to be the top issue of dispute, John. I, I did want to talk about that a little more with you because, you know, the opposition to the aid seems to be, you know, you do have some Republicans saying, you know, look, they applaud Zelensky, but um, they have real questions about whether there's an end game here, whether we're just going to be forever pouring more and more money into Ukraine to continue this standoff. Is there an end game is one of their arguments. The other is they are concerned about corruption or the money not being well well used in Ukraine. And then you got some on the on the right fringe that just say, hell no, America first, you know, we have needs at home. Who cares about Ukraine? Although I'm not sure that's a a widespread sentiment. But all those issues combined means you do have some opposition to this aid. How much have we spent so far on Ukraine? Is there an end game? Did you think Zelensky's visit helped much there? Tell us what what's the latest state of play on that? Okay. Well, I mean, we spent more than a hundred hundred billion dollars, um, uh, and I'm not sure that Zelensky's visit uh, had a had a measurable impact on things. Um, you know, opinions seem to be pretty hard set, um, but I think the o- overall there remains um, enough bipartisan support for Ukraine spending and public support. Um, it's not overwhelming. It's, you know, in the public, it's like six, 60% or something, or, or in some polls, it's even less. Um, but I think generally speaking, there's, there's, there's support for Ukraine. I mean, the, the end game question is, a, is the hardest one, right? You know, I think the, the point of view of somebody like McConnell would be, you know, we partly it's a sunk cost argument <laughs> or fallacy, depending on how you look at it, which is we've, we've, we've done this much, you know, it's not, it's no, not time to go wobbly as Margaret, Margaret Thatcher would have said. And a lot of people are pointing out that if we had uh, approved some weapons sooner and sent some, uh, advanced U.S. weapons uh, to the to the field sooner, then maybe things would be going a little bit better here. And if we do some of more of that going forward, that the Ukrainians do have a fighting chance. Um, but it's a, it, it is only going to get harder. And the difficulty Ukraine has had in its counteroffensive this summer, I'm told by uh, Senate Republican aides, has made their case harder. In other words, a lot of people are looking at this and saying, Hey, their their military is is not getting the job done. You know, how much longer are we gonna are we gonna do this? But um, so that those are sort of some of the the arguments. Yeah, and you had a, you have a great piece up this morning. Actually, folks should check out on CQ.com or RollCall.com, making the point that for all the money that's already been spent on Ukraine, a lot of it is still in the pipeline, and and those weapons haven't even arrived yet, right? Right. Um, yeah. A lot of times, you know, when when the press has covered some of these announcements of weapons packages being sent to Ukraine, they're even described as Biden is sending or sent X million dollars to Ukraine. 
if you're talking about weapons that are coming right off the, sh the, the shelves uh, of U.S. inventories, yeah, those are going over right away. But if there's any refurbishment that needs to be done or even new production, uh, it takes a while. And I don't think people have, the public has a real, or even a lot of experts and military defense reporters have an idea of how long it's taking to get some of this stuff over there. Now, the first problem was Biden taking so long to approve many of these weapons. There's a handful of them that he took on the order of three months to say yes to. And there are some <clears throat> like Abrams tanks and uh, F-16s, uh, NATO F-16s, where he took uh, something like a year to decide. To, but that only starts the process. And as you know, David, from and both of you, from having covered the Pentagon, you know, these things take time. And depending on who you talk to, you know, they're either dragging their feet or they're doing their best. But the, the bottom line is whether you're talking about putting something on contract or actually doing the work and getting it over there, it takes time. So I was able to dig up some examples of weapon systems that were announced many, many months ago that are not going to be going there on the timeline that had been previously announced. And in fact, a lot of them are not going to be there until 2024 or even later. Is the war still going to be going on by the time some of these weapons uh, are ready to go over? Yeah. So, so is, there, is there a big pile of money still unspent that they have yet to get to for, U for Ukraine? Yeah. Um, so there was uh, $100 billion plus, I think it's $113 billion is the total amount, which includes humanitarian econo and economic assistance. Within that, you have $44 billion approximately that was for weapons, and it was spl split roughly half, uh, first half being presidential drawdown authority, which means stuff that's on our shelves that we can send over right away. And the other part of it was the Ukraine uh, Security Assistance Initiative, which means new or refurbished weapons, okay? So in that, in that bucket, there was $18.6 billion appropriated so far, but of that, only half has been put on contract. Now remember, that money was appropriated last year, and yet 9.1 of 18.6 has been obligated, meaning put on contract. So, a so lot there's of still some money there to use. So I mean that that almost it, it, that actually makes the case harder to justify a new round of Ukraine aid right well, now because people it, are going to say, "Well, that money is sitting there, and you don't you haven't even used it yet, right?" It, it, it possibly does make that, that. I could see a lot of people looking at that and saying, drawing exactly that conclusion. Of course, others will look at that and say, "No, no, no. The point here is they need to spend that money and get it out and get the weapons going." Uh, and we need more money um, because Ukraine needs it to fight the war. I do want to clarify, though, um, $9.1 billion of $18.6 billion has been put on contract. So the majority of that money has not yet been put on contract. Uh, however, they have decided what they want to use the money for. And they say that they can start to spend some of the money without actually finishing the contract. But we don't know how much of it. So just to put that uh, asterisk yeah. in there, that they can do some of the work. But the bottom line is, until you get you know a contract finalized, you can't spend the bulk of this money. 
Well, that is that. <laughs> That does make it, I think, harder. Uh, it, it does seem to make each round of Ukraine aid a harder sell as this goes on, partly because it takes so long for the money to even move and partly because, you know, the counteroffensive was not as effective as, as people had hoped, I think, or as quick as people had hoped. And so they don't see the end game. They don't see how, how even more money is going to change things, I guess. So there's a, a rising frustration level there among some of the Republicans and you know that's why i say i wouldn't want to be mccarthy right now i think i think generally mccarthy has said he's supportive of ukraine aid but he's also dealing with a caucus that he knows is resistant to it a good portion of his caucus that has the power to derail things if he if he goes too hard on that that's why you hear mccarthy talking about how he doesn't want to give ukraine a blank check which no one's really giving Ukraine a blank check, but that's the language he uses to sort of express uh, the need for better scrutiny of this money to try to appease his right wing. But he has a real dilemma, Aiden. I mean, if the if the Senate sends him a stopgap measure with a big pile of Ukraine money in it, that is just a sitting target for these Freedom Caucus members who don't want it you know, can you see them stripping out the Ukraine money and sending it back to the Senate who will probably have left town by that point? I mean, I could see this dragging out uh, dragging out for a couple of weeks. Yeah, that, that could happen. I, I, I guess an alternative path, which is uh, possible, would be the Senate just sends straight up clean CR, leaves a supplemental stuff out for now, have it be very short, avoid its government shutdown, Give a little more time to negotiate to see how that would include the supplemental uh, money. But again, the senators have been really strong on Ukraine and they want this money, so that yeah, might be- I'm skeptical of that because they're they're gonna they're gonna want the Ukraine aid. They're gonna see they're gonna see this stopgap measure as the only way to get the Ukraine aid passed. And yeah, and there's an insistence on including it, certainly from Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate leader. Uh, is going to insist on that Ukraine aid being there, I think. Yeah, the, the shutdown, looming shutdown gives them gives them leverage that they that they won't have. But, you know, they'll have that same leverage if, as Aiden suggests, they, they punt it into dis- December. But there's no avoiding this debate, right? Whenever it happens, uh, the United States Congress is going to collectively is going to have to make a decision. Yeah, I didn't mean and, to and interrupt. This, yeah, this, will be, this will be debated and, and the, there will be a fight especially between the chambers on this topic. It's going to be very interesting to see. Uh, it's more likely than not will happen, I guess, in the next week. But there was an escape valve that might be able to keep the government open. But we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Well, on that semi-optimistic note, we're going to have to leave it. Um, <laughs> I'm it always is- an optimist, David. All year I've been saying... I've been hopeful and uh, probably yes, too hopeful. Yes, you have, but uh, I think my skepticism is going to win out, Aiden. Um, I, I would I would wager that you're right, but uh, you know, someone has does, to try to see. It, it does benefit. look like we're heading for a meltdown, um, but we will we will see, and and it's going to be quite a week coming up. So stay tuned and hang on to something. That's all the time we have for now. If you like what you hear here, you should subscribe to the CQ Budget newsletter which hits your inbox every morning the Congress is in session. You can find that at CQ.com. My thanks again to Aidan Quigley and John Donnelly for joining me today. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. 
You can find all of our coverage at cq.com or rollcall.com. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. We'll see you next time.